Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. The field of chronic pain is one of the hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, leaving many patients overburdened with their chronic pain and their ongoing treatment delayed. Many are older adults with multiple health conditions, putting them at greater risk of COVID-19 infection and other health problems. Caring for patients with chronic pain during COVID-19 presents new challenges for physicians and healthcare providers. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Heckman, attending physician at MedStar National Rehabilitation Network. He's going to talk about chronic pain, including types, causes, risk factors, therapies, and management programs for older adults. He'll also discuss the impact of COVID-19 on chronic pain management and treatment and how this population can cope with this condition. Welcome, Dr. Heckman, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for having me on the show. Dr. Heckman, let's get started with the basics. First of all, define what is chronic pain and how does it differ from acute pain? So I think it's a good idea just to define pain in general. So pain is a unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And that's a newer definition by the International Association for the Study of Pain. And that definition highlights a subjective nature of pain and also the emotional response, which can be very powerful for some people. So using that as the basis, chronic pain is a pain that's been, a pre- been present for at least three months. So anything less than that would be considered in that acute pain reg- realm. Uh, usually we think of it as like up to four weeks, but anywhere from that four weeks to three months for acute pain. So the sensation is the same, but the difference between chronic pain then and acute pain is really the time factor. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yes, that, that's what I'm saying for the definition uh, of, the, of chronic pain. Uh, you know, the longer it goes on, sometimes you'll have changes within that pain, uh, and that can lead to even more longer-term pain which we may get into later. Okay. And since this is an Aging Matters uh, radio program, how common is chronic pain among older adults? It's a very common condition, you know, and some 
studies they looked at uh, through the CDC, up to 40% of older adults have chronic pain. And that's a significant burden for our society, you know, and it, from the economic burden to medical costs, uh, loss of production from working, and then the disability costs associated with that. So it's a, it's a huge social uh, problem. Um, and, and so I think it's very important to focus on this and have good treatment options. And I heard that you just weren't used the word disability. And, and is chronic pain considered a disability? Yeah, if you look at the definition through the uh, ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, I would say most chronic pain would fall under that. So they define it as a person who has physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity events. And so I think most people with pain would fall under, excuse, excuse me, fall under that category. Um, it, yeah, they even if they don't have a current impairment or they did in the past, they would still have a disability. Uh, so I think that most people would fall under that uh, category of disability. All right. Well, let's drill down a little bit, as it were, and talk about the different parts of the body that are most susceptible to chronic pain. I guess as we get older, um, we have a pain here and a pain there, but let's be specific from an expert like you, Dr. Heckman, as to which parts of the body are the ones that are most susceptible to chronic pain. And along with that, then talk about the causes. Yeah. Uh, so low back pain is the most common cause of chronic pain. It's one of the most common visits uh, at the physician office also. Um, and kind of following that, other areas of the spine are very common, including the neck. Um, and then, you know, after that, I think we get into more joint pain related to arthritis and previous injuries, injuries and we also uh, have uh, extremity pain due to neuropathy. So I think those are some of the most common causes in terms of low back pain being the most common cause and, you know, what causes that. So we have, you know, disc disorders, um, arthritis, um, uh, I, I'd say muscle imbalance is a good way to put uh, a lot of to describe a lot of low back pain also and it's not always due to uh, chance or something the patient did sometimes there's injuries that cause pain um, past surgery in some cases has developed into a chronic pain situation so there can be a lot of causes for the pain i was going to be asking you a little bit later but i could even start right now uh Chronic pain in terms of headaches, is, is that uh, related, the, the headache po problem? I think it's less common than some of these other ones, but I think okay. what we see with headaches is pain that started out earlier in life and kind of continues on through adulthood and into the older adult realm. Um, and I think if, if you have a new onset headache as an older adult, I think it's something to take very seriously, depending on what type of headache it is. If it's a very severe, kind of the worst headache of your life, that's the kind of headache that would take you to the emergency room and has to be taken uh, very seriously. Uh, there are very few headaches that develop as an older adult. So 
uh, as a new onset. So we, we need to take those seriously if they do happen. But I think what we see more as an older adult is some of those musculoskeletal problems, maybe in the upper neck area that start to uh, creep into the head a little bit and you start to get tension and um, arthritis and kind of referring into the head. And so, so I do see quite a few people like that. One of the questions that really comes up right now with COVID is that people are a little concerned about going to see their physician. And um, I'm going to ask you this question about whether older adults should cope with chronic pain without treatment. What, what would you tell people in terms of maybe people who just started having chronic pain? Is it mm-hmm. a good idea to not get treatment for your chronic pain? Yeah, uh- I mean, I think that you should get treatment or have somebody look at it. I think there are very good options for uh, televisits, either uh, telephone or video visits right now in most systems. So I think there are options, even if you don't want to come to the doctor's office to get evaluated. Uh, I know within our system, we're looking at different ways to screen people uh, through even physical therapists will screen people on occasion and refer it to physicians if they think it needs management. So there are a lot of different ways to to get screened without being seen in person. So I think that's a good uh, starting point. I've seen a lot of people that don't have uh, you know access to good video equipment or a new uh, smartphone. I just chat with them on the phone. And if I, if I really feel like they need to be seen, I tell them. And uh, if they have any red flags that we're worried about or they have neurologic issues, I, I feel like they should be seen in the office. I, I tell them, and, and certainly it's up to them if they would like to come in. And, and we are taking all the precautions we can in the office to keep everybody safe. And uh, generally we have less, uh, less time, I'm sorry, less uh, volume of patients coming through the office. Uh, and uh, trying to keep people separated as much as possible. So I would say certainly get evaluated in some way. And uh, I, I, I hear a lot about that even in terms of other issues, not chronic pain, say cardiac issues. So I, I don't think people should delay if they feel like they have a, a serious issue or potential serious issue. I would also suspect, uh, Dr. Heckman, that there are a lot of other symptoms that are associated with chronic pain, for example, mood disorders or other mental conditions. Is that true? And, and talk a little bit more about maybe what some of these other symptoms, at least, again, in connection with mood disorders or mental uh, health conditions might be. Yeah, I think chronic pain... Oh, with chronic pain, we often see uh, depression and anxiety as a common symptom uh, with that. And I think it depends on how long the pain's been going on. If it's only been three months, maybe not as much. But if it's as years that were going on and there's been a lot of changes that, that person has had to go through in terms of their you know, activity level has changed, perhaps maybe their personal relationships, financial issues, you know, related to that chronic pain situation, that can take a toll on you mentally. And, and that stress can certainly lead to other things. So I think when I'm looking at people as a whole, you know, we have to kind of address that. And, you know, if there's not something I can take care of, I refer them if they're not being treated for it already. Uh, uh, I think right now we're seeing a little uptick in that, you know, I, I'm definitely seeing people that are a little bit more on edge because they're 
in some cases working or they're not working, uh, they're worried, uh, they're not able to see their family. So all the things you hear about on the news, I think, are are reality where people are not seeing their their family members, especially if they live in other countries or out of the area. So um, that it's a big issue, and uh, I think it's causing a little bit of a uh, over uh, overburdening our mental health system a little bit too. I think it was already uh, kind of tough to find uh, providers in that in, in mental health uh, services. Uh, I think it's even harder now because of the demand. Uh, so I think there are uh, there, there there needs to be a focus on this, especially if this COVID goes on uh, for you know another year or so. It could be really uh, tough for a lot of people. In fact, taking that one step further, I'm imagining that it might even chronic pain might even interfere with sleep and and maybe even shorten life expectancy or result in death. Is this also something that you've seen or uh, talked with your colleagues about in connection with chronic pain? Yes, I think chronic pain can cause a lot of sleep issues and. Uh, I try to differentiate whether or not it's due to pain versus a, uh, an actual sleep uh, disorder. So I think that's an important uh, thing to try to separate. You know, if it's a purely pain issue, we can treat that pain. Maybe they can get better sleep. But if they have some, you know, sleep apnea, for example, or some other sleep disorder, I think they need a referral to a sleep specialist and maybe treat that with um, those types of um uh, either medications or in some cases equipment where they'll have to use a breathing mask at nighttime. So I think you have to make that differentiation. Uh, but I do talk about sleep hygiene. So kind of thinking about, uh, you know, what are you doing at nighttime? Are you drinking a lot of, you know, caffeine or alcohol late in the day that can disrupt sleep? Thinking about having a, a good a space for sleeping, you know, less TV, less, uh, uh, screen time, close to bedtime. So I do try to talk about some of those um, sleep hygiene, um, you know, treatments uh, as a first line. There are certainly some studies about cognitive behavioral therapy for for this that may be helpful. And I ran across uh, uh, an app that's called CBTI Coach from the Department of the VA, where it has some. Uh, uh, kind of a sequence of things you can do to try to get to sleep. So I think the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs has, has done a good job in the pain section and trying to help people uh, and develop things that they can do on their own. Um, when I'm trying to develop a plan for a pain medication, I'll also consider whether or not that medication causes drowsiness. And sometimes that can be a good side effect for some people if they just have trouble getting to sleep. Uh, maybe because of pain or other issues, um, and it may kind of help them go to sleep. So that can be uh, a good side effect in some cases. In terms of whether or not we'll shorten life expectancy, I've not run across that, but directly anyway. So I think indirectly, the increased weight and the link to cardiovascular risk could develop into a problem which may decrease in life expectancy. So I think that may be the link with uh, decreased sleep. Dr. Heckman, would you say that a, a healthy lifestyle could help to manage and prevent chronic pain? We're going to talk about treatments shortly, but might the, 
the likelihood of chronic pain be less if people do have a healthy lifestyle, they eat right, uh, they're not overweight? What, what would you say about that? I would say absolutely. I think one of the initial treatments we often recommend is exercise. Uh, you know, home exercise by uh, by themselves is a good starting point, but we often prescribe uh, formal physical therapy or other types of exercise with a personal trainer. Uh, I think all that's great. I think we have to find something that that patient will do consistently and will hopefully do long term. And so I think that's where having a variety of different things, you know, if they like cycling and they like running or walking, trying to figure out what kind of things that person can do uh, for a long term. I, I think that's the main thing we have to do more of. <clears throat> Certainly diet changes and healthy weight are, are important, uh, not just for chronic pain, but for whole, whole body, for like cardiovascular health, for example. And, you know, there's a lot of push for, decreasing the highly processed foods in the diet, which seems to have some link to an inf inflammation and that may be uh, generating more pain also. So I think thinking about diets really important and whether or not you go with something that uh, I would consider like a fad diet, that's, you know, up to the person. But I, I, I think thinking about things in moderation. So don't eat too much of anything and uh, I think generally that's a good starting point for people and then decreasing uh, processed foods as much as possible is always a good starting point too. Do you see a lot of non-traditional therapies? Uh, I'm wondering whether or not patients that you see come to come to see you and say, well, I tried this or that or the other thing. Um, how do you... How do you react to that? Are, are they these so-called non-traditional therapies? It'd be interesting to hear maybe some of the things that you've seen and, and more importantly, or as importantly, are they as effective in treating chronic pain as some of the more traditional therapies? Right. Uh, yeah, they're becoming much more common. I, I think the one of the more common ones we'll see is acupuncture. I think that's becoming much more uh, common and accepted. You're going to see a lot of different providers from certified acupuncturists to physicians that practice it. And, uh, you know, you're going to find some differences in how people treat. But I would say in general, it seems to be helping. Uh, uh, this complementary medicine in general doesn't have a lot of robust data to say that, yes, this is definitely the way to go with this. But I would say generally it's safe and as long as it's affordable, I think it's a good option. Uh, some others that people consider Reiki, which is uh, uh, Japanese uh, type therapy, uh, massage therapy, uh, meditation, mind-body therapy. There, there's so many things out there that people could consider, but they're becoming more available because we have <clears throat> uh, access to uh, different apps and streaming services that people can easily uh, connect with and from the comfort of their own home. So they're, I, I suggest to people to try out some things that hopefully they're not too expensive. You can try it out for a little while, see if it works for them. And, and some people like uh, certain things. And some of these things take more work like meditation. It, it's, uh, it can be difficult to get into. And so it's not for everyone. 
but I find cost is probably the major issue with this. And a lot of these are conservative ways to go. And I wish they would be an option for everyone, but the reality is that they're not right now. Right. Well, and I think too, even in terms of non-traditional therapies that might, I mean, people react differently. So uh, to uh, the the success. So I guess that's important to, to consider as well. So let's talk a little bit about the healthcare providers. Who are they that treat chronic pain? You are a doctor of osteopathy. Explain to our listeners how does a doctor of osteopathy differ from a doctor of medicine? Are there other kinds of healthcare providers who treat chronic pain? Explain what a patient would uh, need to know in order to seek treatment. Yeah. Uh, so osteopathic programs are designed to be more holistic. So the idea is that the entire body is taken into account, even if you're treating a specific region. Uh, in terms of the background schooling, the basic science is very similar, if not the same as uh, other allopathic programs. And often we train side by side in clinical uh, uh, periods. Um, but with the osteopathic training, there's also osteopathic manipulative uh, treatments that are uh, essentially a type of manual medicine that we learn. So that starts on day one. So there's a lot of hands-on uh, training focused on the musculoskeletal system. So uh, for me, that was a very good starting point because, you know, from that day one, I'm putting my hands on people's necks and, and joints and everything to see how they move and how they react to different things. And so there's certain treatments that can be done and for certain conditions. And whether or not you continue practicing that, that's up to the individual provider, of course. Uh, but osteopathic programs do send people to all different specialties, from the specialty I'm in to physical medicine rehab, pain medicine. Uh, to primate care, to other surgical specialties. So we're really in all different realms. So you know, in terms of like who treats chronic pain, I, I think that really starts at the primate care level and everybody's gonna have a different uh, comfort level on how far they'll go with treatment. But I think it starts there and we often get referrals from primate care providers uh, after they've done one or two things that they thought would be reasonable and then they felt like they were out of their realm. So that's a very common referral pattern since a lot of the, the pain complaints that are chronic are musculoskeletal or neurologic in nature, I think a couple of the specialties that are, are common would be uh, physical medicine, rehabilitation, uh, rheumatology, neurology, orthopedic specialties. And, and I, so I think those are the main ones that are going to see the chronic pain population. And, you know, how far you go with that and what kind of treatments are offered is very individual to that uh, practitioner. I would suspect, though, that as a starting point, it would be uh, a good idea for a patient who is having pain or chronic pain to begin with, like a doctor of osteopathy or doctor of medicine, and then re be referred then to the appropriate other health provider to further the treatment. W would you agree? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it would. If I were starting out uh, a pain that's you know newly discussing for the first time, I think um, your primary physician is a good starting point. Um, and if you don't have one, maybe that's when you seek out somebody um, like like myself and and say, okay, who can I see? Uh, 
in that musculoskeletal realm if it is a musculoskeletal condition. And I, I would, I hesitate to recommend people jump to a, a surgical specialty right away unless they've been referred that way uh, or they think they absolutely need to for some reason. But, but many times uh, people go to a surgeon, but they really don't have to go that direction quite yet. Uh, so I would tell them to take a step back, maybe you see a non-surgical specialty initially, at least for um, you know, screening imaging and whatnot, and then kind of move towards that direction if you need to. Okay. Well, in the next part of the program, we're going to talk about treatments, but we're going to take a short break right now for an important message. First of all, we are talking with Dr. Thomas Heckman, attending physician at MedStar National Rehabilitation Network, talking about chronic pain. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or C-C-A-T-K-W at gmail.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Heckman, attending physician at MedStar National Rehabilitation Network about chronic pain. And Dr. Heckman, you hear so often about patients who might say, you know, I have this pain and my doctor just doesn't take me seriously. Uh, Is that uh, likely to happen? Is it possible that healthcare providers don't take chronic pain complaints, especially of older adults. There might be various reasons why people are complaining. What's been your experience with that kind of situation? Yes, I think that does happen, but I hope it doesn't happen too often. Uh, I, I think it's easy to chalk things up to being older and just thinking that there's nothing else to do. But there usually are options for those people. So I would encourage uh, both patients to be persistent and uh, providers to be open to uh, potentially treating or evaluating those those conditions. Um, And I think the other place we see this is where people often come into the office and say, you know, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. And it can be tough to... um, take all of that and, and triage and, and know what, which one is worth looking into right now and which ones maybe we put on the back burner um, and wait and see. So I think that can be a, even more of an issue when, when people have multiple complaints and or they have complaints every time they come in and it might be different areas. So it can be tough sometimes to take you know five complaints and, and bring it down to one or two that's more manageable uh, for workup right now. Uh, but again, I hope that doesn't ha- happen too often, but I, I certainly see people in my office that sometimes I have to say, okay, let's bat- just hold on a little bit. We need to figure out which one's the worst and most concerning, and do we need to 
can look at this or this because you have some neurologic issues or deficits and then work from there. So uh, it can be difficult as a provider, um, but uh, we, we need to be diligent about working up these people that need to be checked out. And that leads me to the next question as we now move into the treatment is, what are chronic pain management programs? Uh, help us on this. Who qualifies for these programs? How do you determine what kind of program? Are they effective? And, and most importantly, or as importantly, who actually treats the patients in these kinds of programs? Yeah, so the, unfortunately, there are not as many as there used to be, perhaps. Uh, but these programs I think you're referring to are these multifaceted approaches to uh, pain medicine and pain management, which are fantastic because they encompass uh, all the things we do on an outpatient basis often. And so that would be include, you know, exercise. So therapeutic exercise, including physical therapy, occupational therapy, if needed, mental health providers. Um, looking at the medication, uh, whether that's, you know, pain medication or psychiatry uh, or psychological type medication. So you get these different providers looking at the one patient. So they're often like team meetings or, or a discussion, um, and it can be very effective uh, for that patient. So with the studies that looked at these programs, uh, the, the data is good and the outcomes are, are better than treatment doing more piecemeal. However, I think that it came down to cost because you have these uh, programs that are either outpatient based and they're kind of day programs and there are multiple weeks or some sort of inpatient program, but it's like a pretty high cost overall. So I think uh, they haven't found great ways to pay for those in a lot of cases and some insurances may cover them, some may not. Uh, I think we've have one or two in the area here. I know Johns Hopkins has one that's um, more psychiatry driven. I know Cleveland Clinic has one. So there's not a lot. So we often uh, try to reproduce that in an outpatient setting so we can have you see physical therapy or, or you know, mental health providers on a pretty frequent basis and then you know, see me or, or somebody like me and uh, any other medical provider you need to. And then you can encompass those procedures too. So you can kind of reproduce it. And I think people get the best outcomes when you can combine all of it, but it's a little harder to, harder to do these days. So it sounds like it's better to do the kinds of of treatment programs that you can do in this area and that are more reasonable. I was going to ask, you talked about insurance. Does Medicare cover uh, these treatment programs? You know, I'm not positive about who covers and who doesn't, but I think when we, unfortunately, we get into Medicare, um, you know, they may re, they may pay for less than some other ones. So uh, the cost may be higher than what Medicare reimburses. Um, so I'm not sure about the, you know, the individual circumstances of the, the programs, but, uh, but that can be the problem with, um, with Medicare in general. Um, so that might be why they've kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. There are some other, I will call them also like pain retreats out there where you'll kind of sign up for a week and 
you know, what's called Arizona in a beautiful setting, and they'll have a lot of different treatment programs during that week. So that might include more of those complementary treatments. Uh, sometimes they'll encourage you to detox from your medications and, and different sorts of things. So there are those kind of private pay where it's out of, out of pocket. Um, but, you know, again, these are for people that can afford it. So it's not for everyone necessarily. What are you seeing right now, Dr. Heckman, uh, insofar as how uh, COVID-19, the, the pandemic, is impacting managing chronic pain? You, you've mentioned now some of the ways that people can receive treatment. You've mentioned physical therapy, and we might be talking a little bit more about that. But in general, is has the pandemic had a a significant effect on people actually getting the kind of treatment that they need? Yeah, I think initially there was, like like a lot of specialties, there was people that just weren't seeking treatment at all. So I think we, we've kind of unfortunately settled into this pandemic a little bit more. So we're trying to adapt to this new reality where people are, are finding the ways to connect with telemedicine or uh, telephone in some cases. Uh, or they're actually accepting the, some risk to, to come into the office and, and be seen. Um, also, in the physical therapy realm, initially we offered virtual uh, physical therapy, which I think they're still doing, which can be difficult depending on your connectivity at home. But that was a good way to get people moving uh, and kind of get them on a program at home. Uh, but now people are coming into the office a little bit more. Um, I think some of the problems I ran into initially were, you know, that people not seeking treatment or, or delays in treatment or things we had planned, say, in March or April that we had to just not do. Now those people are starting to call back to the office and say, oh, hey, I was supposed to do this in, in March, but I, it was canceled. And so we're trying to get those people on the right track again. Uh, so, you know, I would say there's probably a six month delay in treatment and whatever that may have been. Um, in, ch- in terms of medications, I think we've just been able to maintain people on whatever they were on. Uh, fortunately, we have a good electronic system with sending medications, and I don't think that's been too interrupted for the most part. Um, and we were able to give people refills in a pretty timely fashion. Um, and, and so that hasn't been inter- interrupted, but. Uh, we, we saw a lot of delays in surgery also for many people. So if they were kind of waiting, you know, man, for managing pain because they're waiting for a surgery of some sort, a lot of those are still being rescheduled towards like the end of the year. So um, some of those people that were scheduled in early spring are still not done uh, because it wasn't emergent. Um, so we're, we're having to like kind of manage those people in other ways than, than are expected or were expected. Of course, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the most, one of the important questions about medications, and that's opioid use. Mm-hmm. I certainly have read enough articles about the increase in opioid use, um, again, because of isolation and um, uh, maybe not being able to go to the doctor. Has there been an increase in opioid use for chronic pain uh, during COVID-19? I, I can't say that I've seen that increase in my practice, but I, I have, have heard the data that uh, overdose have gone up. And I think that might be that isolation and maybe increase in mental health issues uh, during this period. Um, uh, but in terms of 
new patients coming in. I can't say that that's been a huge increase in my practice. I, I think maybe we're continuing to manage with opioids longer if the plan was a short-term management because of the delays in surgery. Um, I, I can say that's a reality in my practice where, you know, we have a plan for, okay, this, you know, four months prior to surgery, a little bit after perhaps, but after that, we're going to kind of wean down. And so that's all been pushed back six months or more. And so we're having to just go longer term, you know? So I think the longer people are, are on opioids, the harder it is to get off. And I think that's, you know, true across the board. Uh, so that's one thing we're running into. So I guess it'll be interesting to see, you know, in a year from now, what that data looks like also. But I would say we're still using pretty similar, you know, medications in general. So still looking at non-opioids first, you know, whatever's, you know, reasonable in terms of, you know, those med pain medications and other types of medications. And now we are able to offer other procedures because we're able to do elective uh, things now. What about surgery? You did mention earlier on as to when going to see a, a healthcare provider that it would be best not to start with surgery, but is what what are the times or the situations when surgery for chronic pain is is recommended for older adults? What are the what are the cases and maybe what are the exceptions? Yeah, I think I think one of the the cases where you want to see somebody maybe in the ER or urgent care would be if you had a fall and you feel like you have a fracture. I think that's one case where you definitely want to be seen by somebody because you may need surgery to repair that or, or maybe a cast or immobilization would be fine. So if there's some sort of trauma, you know, serious fall, arm, wrist, leg, uh, you know, and a lot of those things uh, are very obvious to some people and not to others. So I think, you know, if you had an acute injury, that's one place to start. So you might need to see a surgeon in that case. If you have any neurologic compromise, so that means like a sudden loss in the movement of your legs or your arms, you know, changing your bowel or bladder habits where you can't control it, or you feel like very unbalanced when you're walking very suddenly. Uh, so I think those are cases where you want emergent care and that's usually not a surgeon initially that might be an emergency room uh, but i think that would be an initial evaluation and they may refer you depending on uh, what what they find so i think that those are cases where you might need surgery uh, sooner um, but in terms of like when you need surgery for other things i think that's quite variable you know some people can go their whole life with severe arthritis in a knee for example you know a lot of people don't ever want surgery for that. Uh, and then other people are very quick to the to surgical option as long as they've gone through enough non-operative uh, options, I think it's reasonable. Um, so you kind of have to look at the whole person, you know, what, what, what are their goals? Like, what do they want to be able to do? What can't they do now? And, you know, where do they want to be? And, you know, what kind of comorbidities or health concerns do they have? And can they tolerate a big surgery? And so that can be a huge factor uh, for people, whether or not they are a candidate for a surgery, especially if there's uh, you know, potential blood loss and um, you know, it can be a, a, a big, uh, it can be uh, kind of rough on your system as a whole. So you have to be able to handle that. And sometimes surgery doesn't work. Right, right. So I think even, you know, unfortunately we, we look to these, 
you know, I think replacements is a good example, like where you, you kind of take out the, the old arthritic part, you put in a new part. But uh, even under the best of circumstances, that does not always work in equal uh, pain-free and, and better movement and better function. And obviously, you can have complications after any surgery or potential for that. And uh, pain is a funny thing. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's not just about tissue injury. It's that potential tissue injury. It's emotional responses. It's stress and your whole life kind of wrapped up into that. So, um, you know, that's why we look at imaging and say, okay, there's arthritis here, but does it hurt? You know, what's it doing to you? And, and, and some people say, yeah, that hurts a lot. Some people say, nah, it's okay. So you don't necessarily have to go uh, to surgery for those kind of things. Dr. Heckman, do you think that public education is about chronic pain is is really important and effective? I think it's important for sure because I think it's helpful for people to know that they're not alone and they're not in this silo and they're just trying to get through life and being very alone. And I think now with technology and specifically, you know, these um, you know, groups of different sorts and different platforms, people can connect and kind of know that they're not alone, maybe trade some ideas. And I think that can be helpful for the most part. Sometimes it can be not so helpful, but, uh, you know, at least you know that uh, there are other people like you out there. And I think that can be helpful mentally. And I think there's more and more resources becoming available. Like I mentioned earlier, there's uh, Department of Veterans Affairs has done a good job putting some resources out there for people and how to manage on your own. And there are lots of uh, different um, spine organizations that have a lot of information about, you know, what, what kind of back pain or what kind of uh, back pathology, uh, you know, what kind of procedures are available for that kind of pathology. So uh, there's a lot out there for people. Um, and I think with the opioid crisis, you know, something bad like that can bring something good. So more attention uh, to, uh, to side effects from medications, more research into those kinds of medications, and then more advances in, in terms of treatment. So some medication options, hopefully, but, but other non-medication options, such as, um, I think we've had a lot of advancements in uh, neurostimulators. So I think those are kind of good things that come out of a bad situation. And in fact, you you're a, just segued into my next question. You mentioned technology and the nerve stimulators. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what a nerve stimulator is? And is there other kinds of technology that are being used to treat and reduce chronic pain? Yeah. So I think that the apps, there's so many apps out there now. If you search like pain, you, you'll be able to track your pain. So I think this can be helpful for people when you're going to see a provider to say, okay, these are my daily pain scores or my function scores or whatnot, but you can track your pain. So that's really easy for people with these smartphones. They can track pain, sleep, you know, eating habits. If you want to uh, track exactly your caloric intake, you can take that to your, your provider, your nutritionist or, or whatever. Uh, and then, of course, almost all phones now have some sort of step app or some, you know, counter steps. So I think that's helpful for people to have more knowledge about what they're doing and what kind of exercise they're getting. Um, you know, the stimulators are are not new. They've been around for a long time, but I think the technology has gotten better and better. So those are, are they can be used for different things. They can be implantable 
stimulators that go into your epidural space, which is in your spine. And that can be very helpful for both um, kind of low back, extre extremity pain, neck and extremity pain also for different sorts of pain. So that that's kind of a the, probably extreme case like where uh, you have to get an implant. There are some that are more uh, short-term where you put them in for short periods of time and they can be targeted for the peripheral nerves, which are individual nerves throughout the body. And those can be for more specific injuries or conditions. So there's a lot of technology happening, a lot of research in that realm. I think it's very exciting because those are those non-medicinal uh, options. Uh, and, and in some cases that can reverse some of those chronic paint uh, tendencies that your body has. So they call it centralization. So it can reverse some of that. Um, we're also seeing, you know, wearable technology. I don't think this has caught on quite yet for the, uh, for the general public, but you know, if you wanted to track the range of motion of a joints or, or, or the spine throughout the day, what somebody's doing at their workplace, uh, you would be able to potentially get some data and to say, all right, how much is this person bending during the day and what kind of forces are they putting on their spine or joints? And so I think that uh, would be interesting you know, research uh, and data to gather. I wanted to, for the remainder of the time that we have left in the program, just really focus in on some of the examples. And earlier you said that for the most part, what older adults suffer most is chronic pain. So let's talk about that first. Why is chronic back pain so prevalent among older adults? And then we'll talk about treatment plan and what you see and what your approach is for this condition. Yeah. Yeah. So it's low back pain is very common. And, you know, I think the, the spine in general, especially the low back is very flexible. So it has to be, you have to be able to move it, but it also needs to be withstand all those forces that you put on it. So that can be a tricky balance for a lot of people. And, you know, when you read some of the, the studies and books out there, uh, and there are volumes written on low back pain, of course, and a lot of treatment, um, uh, you know, uh, courses and whatnot about the, the the low back but i think in the end uh, this the modern life that we have now the sitting all the time uh kind of stationary positions are not really good for us and, and you know it doesn't really stress your core muscles and so i i think we have to do more exercise for that we have to um try to retrain those muscles because when you sit all day you get end up getting very tight short and often weak muscles in many areas and that causes an imbalance in your back and it kind of makes that more susceptible to injury and so then when you go you know, go from work all all week to the weekend where you're out doing your mulch uh you know poor lifting technique and potentially repetitive work on that short period of time kind of that week or weekend warrior syndrome you know, you can certainly cause a lot of injuries like that. So I think when you're younger, you kind of get away with this because your body is very adaptable and it's, it, it, it bounces back very quickly, but then you get your middle ages and then later, uh, you know, you, you kind of, some of those things don't recover. So you, then you end up getting this chronic back issue. And once you get an injury or an actual disc issue or, or other injuries, that doesn't always go away. And it doesn't always cause pain, but it doesn't necessarily get better uh, exactly like it was. And so I think the really, I think the, the stress has to be exercise, like core stability, 
getting your back to be, uh, you know, functional for whatever you need it to be, need to be doing. So it is a tough balance, but I think that's where the education for people has, has to be, uh, back education for lifting and other th- like household things that you have to do. And of course, people that are more uh, laborers, they, they need to have good education too, before they start working, lifting heavy things and, and try to be smart about their, their posture and, <laughs> and try to stay strong because those repetitive movements on the back can be detrimental also. I guess the other thing is, is that you need to remember to continue those exercises, those stretch exercises. If you go to PT, I'm speaking from personal experience here, you got to keep doing them to, to feel better. Uh, another area that you mentioned, of course, was the chronic joint pain. That also seems to be a major complaint of, of older adults are there different types of, of chronic joint pain in older adults? And uh, talk a little bit about the causes and the kind of treatments for that, for that, that condition or the various conditions that are called joint pain. Yeah, so I think the t- most typical one I'll see is osteoarthritis, which is a degenerative type of arthritis. So it happens over time and you essentially wear cartilage and that the cartilage keeps a keeps the, the joint moving smoothly. Um, and so over time that can wear down and uh, that can happen for different reasons. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, wear and tear, just kind of, you've been w- doing a lot of uh, particular motion. I think a lot of it goes into tightness in that joint also. So inflexibility and kind of weak muscles will <clears throat> drive some of that arthritis a little bit faster. Um, weight plays a role in it. Um, and so, so those, that's uh, one condition I see a lot of you, uh, some people have inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis or some other inflammatory condition that causes arthritis in the joints. And that could be another uh, thing we'll see. And of, of course you can have very specific injuries, like say a rotator cuff tear or, you know, a specific ligament tear in the knee, which sometimes will later in life cause more arthritis because you had that tear. And it kind of depends if it was repaired or not. So that's like a, a whole area of study, whether or not it's good to repair certain, you know, injuries and, and at what point do you do that? So, but um, sometimes we see people that have had surgery, but they still have pain like we talked about earlier. And, and so we just have to take each individual patient, kind of look at what the options are. Like, what is the option for this joint? I mean, have you done anything? Have you done the exercise and stability? So I often think about stabilizing around that joint. Uh, for, you know, for example, somebody with arthritis in the knee, you really want, you know, keep those muscles strong and flexible around the knee, but you also got to focus a little bit higher and often a little bit lower. Like, you know, what's going on in the hip area? Because if you have a weak hip, that's where it comes, your leg comes from the core. And if you have a weak hip, you're going to ultimately have more stress through that knee, abnormal stress. So you have to look at that whole person in terms of their joints and, and see what we can do about it. Um, you know, in terms of what, what do we do about it? Um, you know, like I said, you know, start with the conservative things first. And that's usually how I approach this. So you work on the exercise of weight loss. And if, if that person needs to be referred to another provider, we can do that. 
um, look at medications. Like what's reasonable? Does that person want to take any medications and what would be appropriate for that individual person? Uh, there are different types of injections we can do. Uh, the traditional one people think of as steroids, but there are other things you can put inside the joint that may improve the, the movement or, or pain with the movement. Um, and then there are other, other things we can do around the joint nerve focused treatments like nerve blocks and even stimulators around the joints. And so there are uh, things we can do that are a little bit more invasive prior to like a replacement, for example. Uh, but replacements are very common, bigger joints in particular, like knees and hips. And I think shoulders are probably third. So the bigger joints in the body, uh, we have fairly good replacement options, but they don't always go as planned. So we have to think about all the options prior to that. Well, Dr. Heckman, we're just about out of time, but maybe you could just very quickly uh, indicate the best resources to learn about chronic pain and just tell us uh, how folks can get in touch with you. Sure. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, U U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has some very good resources on chronic pain, and they have links from their website to other sites, and, and that's anywhere from how to manage yourself and, and opioid resources. Uh, so they've done a good job trying to uh, giving people options. Uh, there's a site called U.S. Pain Foundation that I found some good information on, and uh, there's another one called American Chronic Pain Association. So that's, you know, three of many, uh, but I think those are good options to start out. And, of course, talk to your, your, your physicians. Uh, people can get in touch with me at uh, 703 288-2790 in terms of phone. And I'm on the internet, of course, under MedStar Health, and they should have options for connecting to our offices. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Thomas Heckman, attending physician with MedStar National Rehabilitation Network for joining me today. If you want to listen to past radio programs and watch Aging Matters TV episodes, you can visit the facebook.com forward slash Aging Matters WERA website. There you can find the internet addresses to access both the radio shows and the TV episodes. And by the way, new information, although we've been sharing this now every week, Aging Matters Radio is now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. So listen, invite a friend, and, and by the way, be sure to ask them to rate and review the program at these sites. The more top reviews we get, the more people will listen. So I also want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program and thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.